access to this special episode. First things first, want to remind everyone that there is an election this Tuesday, April 3rd, so make sure you get out and vote. This episode, we got a chance to grab a beer with gubernatorial candidate Mike McCabe at the Library Cafe and Bar in downtown Madison. Now, we record this in the field, and due to some technical difficulties, I just want to warn you that the sound quality isn't as great as what we'd like, so we apologize if it's a little hard on the ears at times, but we think it's really worth a listen. Okay, here's the show. Welcome, everybody, to a very special episode of Beers and Ballots. We're sitting here in the library, cafe, and bar in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Adam. I'm Stephen. And I'm Mike McCabe, candidate for governor. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So I guess we should start off by asking a question we start every podcast with, which is, what are we drinking today? (laughs) We're we're drinking Spotted Cow from New Glarus Brewery. Mm -hmm. And I actually, some years ago, met Deb Carey, who's part of the family that runs New Glarus Brewery. And and they were just getting started. And and she kind of was interested in knowing how politics worked at the Capitol because they were running into some real issues with the big breweries oh. trying to muscle them out. Really? They, they were having issues with they, they were They were being muscled out <laughs> wow, by, by wow. the Miller Brewing and Coors oh, of the world, sure. you know? Yeah, yeah. And so she kind of wanted to know how the place worked. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so I got to know Deb and... and uh, but I developed my liking for Spotted Cow all on my own. <laughs> she didn't have to persuade me. Sure, sure. No, it's a classic. I think the first episode we, we did, we drank Spotted Cow. Yeah, it's a yeah, classic. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Yeah, so Mike, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and why you're running for governor? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I um, was born and raised on a dairy farm, mm-hmm. and that's actually important because we're not going to get a new governor by simply winning in places like Milwaukee and Madison. Sure. There are places around Wisconsin that used to vote for Democrats but stopped, and I am running in the Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are just parts of, of the state that feel left out and forgotten and looked down upon. I'm from one of those places. I, I grew up in Clark County, about halfway between Eau Claire and Wausau, uh, on a family dairy farm. And, you know, I, I've lived in the city and I've lived way out in the country. And so I've straddled those two worlds and a lot of talk. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the rural urban divide. And, Absolutely. And, and I've lived in both places and actually see uh, more in common between rural and urban folks than a lot of rural and urban folks think there is. And <laughs> so I mean, that's a big motivation. And then most of my life's work has been as an independent watchdog. Mm. Uh, exposing and trying to break the grip of big money influence in politics. I, I started a group called the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign mm. that specialized in tracking uh, money in, in state politics and, and, uh, and working to try to get regular people in the driver's seat of our government. That, that, that was decades of work done to, to try to rid Wisconsin of the cronyism and corruption and legal bribery that has taken root in our state. That's a big motivation for why I'm in this race. We got a political system that works so incredibly well for those at the top, but really ignores the wishes and interests of an awful lot of the rest of, of people in Wisconsin, and they deserve representation too. So here I am, a candidate for governor. Yeah. yeah so you're you're actually joined by a lot of other Democratic candidates for governor. That's an understatement. Yeah. So I think last time we checked, there was maybe 17, 18 candidates. It's down to 15 oh, now. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, someone just dropped out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's yeah. down to 15 on the Democratic side. Um, you know, for a while there, I thought we're, it was going to be one of those Baskin Robbins primaries with 31. 
one flavors. Uh, we never got quite that that far, but but it, it's a big field, and I wouldn't be in the race if I looked at that field. And they're all very accomplished people, mm-hmm. but I saw something missing. I I saw all of them. Uh, while very accomplished, they all seem too comfortable with operating within the political system as it mm. currently functions. They, mm. They're at peace with the political culture in our state and are willing to play along with the system as it as it works. And to me, that system has become poison. Mm. To me, that, that system is rigged in favor of the privileged and wealthy and well-connected few at the top. and. And, and that's why on, on every issue that we care about, their agenda ends up getting acted on. And what ordinary people want in this state gets ignored. And, and I, I just felt there needed to be a presence in this race where there was somebody committed to shaking up and transforming that system and refusing to play along with what I see as, as a, a system that is uh, it is full of cronyism and corruption and legal bribery. Interesting. So, uh, it's, a, it's a great campaign slogan, but how do you plan to sort of stand out from the crowd? Like, what do you, besides coming on this podcast, what are you, what are you planning <laughs> to do? You know? Well, one of, the, one of the things that does set me apart is that yeah. I am the one and only candidate born and raised on a farm. Mm. And so I, I come from those rural roots. Another thing that sets me apart from the the rest of the field is is that life's work of, of exposing corruption and, and calling out Democrats and Republicans whenever I saw wrongdoing. So so often what you see on both sides is 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 such intense partisan loyalty where their side can do no wrong, the other side can do no right. And I have a history of calling out both sides when I saw wrongdoing or unethical mm-hmm. conduct. And, and, and I'm the one candidate in the race who's not playing along with the system as it currently exists. A candidate for governor can take up to $20,000 from an individual and $86,000 from a political action committee. Mm. All the work I've done my whole life has taught me that there are strings attached to those kinds of donations. There are expectations that accompany them. I consider them to be legal bribes. I think in most people's hearts, they understand that that's exactly what they are. I, so I can't in good conscience take those. I, I'm not taking any single donation over $200. Mm. Supporters can give more than once, but not more than a total of $1,000 for the whole campaign. So that means this campaign has to be an awful lot of people being willing to give small amounts of money mm. to, and, and then volunteer their time and their energy to, to make this campaign successful. No other candidate in the race is willing to do it like that. They're, they're all saying that the system is broken. They're all saying that there's too much money in politics. They're all saying that there's corruption in Wisconsin government now. But then they all say, but, but we have no choice but to take that money. And, and to me, that's a trap. That leaves us with a government that, that is doomed to continue to work for those at the top. And the thing I can say is that the people have the habit of donating 20000 or 80000 at a time what they want our government to do is really different from what the rest of the people want our government to do and they get their way on issue after issue so do you do you worry though that if you're only taking these small donations that you're going to be hurt in the sort of at a disadvantage compared to some of your really well-funded opponents both in the primary and then potentially in the general well it's it's obviously a, a risk that has to be taken but i think it's a risk worth taking 
because the the sad truth is that most candidates now are told to spend five or six hours a day every day begging rich people for money mm. and squirreling away that money and then running a bunch of TV ads at the end to that's their campaign and I think most people especially young people <laughs> don't watch a lot of TV advertising <laughs> they've found ways around it maybe it's Netflix maybe whatever wherever they're getting their information or entertainment they found ways to get around watching all the ads and so television advertising is losing its impact and yet that's where the political world continues to throw all of its money what I'm doing instead is spending 10 or 12 or 14 hours a day building a citizen army in, instead of building a, a war chest of, of big money. And and we've got over 700 people who are volunteering all around the state. We've built the, we've got zip code captains as well as county captains and regional captains in every part of Wisconsin talking neighbor to neighbor, reaching out person to person. And, and to me, that's a, that's a different way of getting out a message and it's a way that frees an elected official, once elected, from being beholden to all that big money and, it, and its influences. So, yeah, it's a, it's a calculated risk to do it this way, but it's the only way out of the trap that I know. Because otherwise, we're, if, if we continue to do this the way it's been done for years now, we're going to continue to have a government that caters slavishly to, to the wealthy and well-connected. So you mentioned earlier uh, that you, you've called you have the history of both calling out Democrats and Republicans, and your your grassroots group, the uh, Blue Jean Nation. Uh, it's all about bringing together disenfranchised Democrats and Republicans. Um, so, in running for governor, what led you to, to run as a Democrat as opposed to a Republican? Well, first of all, I I um, started getting pushed to to run really a little over a year ago, a year mm. and a half ago. Mm -hmm. There were people in places all over the state, across Eau Claire, Green Bay, Wausau, Milwaukee, Kenosha, Racine, who started really pushing me to run. And I think it was because they were looking for somebody who did have a track record mm -hmm. of, of standing up to the influences that have sort of taken over our capital. And my answer was no. It was kind of more like hell no <laughs> for quite a while. But they didn't, the fascinating thing is that people wouldn't take no for an answer. And that really said a lot to me. Uh, it, it, it said that they were willing to take matters into their own hands. And I just thought that they would not, would they ask, and I said no, that they would leave it at that. Mm -hmm. They would let it go. And they didn't. And so eventually I said, well, if you're willing to make this journey with me, I'll make the journey. Mm. Uh, and then I had to decide, do I run as a, an independent? Do I run as a Democrat? And, and it really comes down to this. Uh, America has a very strong two-party system. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a parliamentary system like some of the European democracies. Uh, a, a second and third party can't join forces and form a coalition government. Right. Uh, we don't have proportional representation or, or ranked choice voting or any of the mechanisms that would allow third party or independent candidacies to really get traction. Mm -hmm. We have winner take all elections. One party wins mm -hmm. the election or, or the other. And it is a two party system. So to me, the way to make the biggest difference, to have the greatest impact on an election mm -hmm. and to have the greatest chance to influence the direction of our government is to run within that two party system and to challenge the party establishments to change their ways. Mm. 
And so I chose to run it in the Democratic primary. I've never been a member of a party in right. my whole life. Mm-hmm. Did you consider running as a Republican, or, or uh, is it too difficult? I, I, think, I think the bottom line is that there's just no way that, that Republican voters are going to kick to the curb a sitting governor mm-hmm. who has won three elections for governor. Yeah. And the other thing is that when you when you look at my values, when you look at my positions on issues, they clearly align more closely with the Democratic Party. I I think the Republican Party is has changed so radically over the time that I've watched Wisconsin government, and it goes back to the early 1980s when I've been around the Capitol. And the Republican Party used to have sort of Main Street Republicans, mm-hmm. moderate Republicans, uh, that, and, and they've all been exterminated from the ranks of the Republican Party. The Republicans have become more and more and more extreme, more and more right-wing, and farther and farther and farther away from people like me. So I don't fit there. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose there are Democratic insiders who say you don't fit in our party either. <laughs> yeah. But that, that really describes most voters out there. Mm-hmm. You know. This is a state of almost six million people, and only a few thousand people are actually party members. Mm-hmm. Most people don't have a strong allegiance to one party or another. They may prefer one party or the other come election time, but they're not active members. And they actually, a lot of people really feel politically homeless. They, mm-hmm. they feel like neither party is working for them, and they're frustrated as all get out. And, and so to me, I, I just thought that the, the natural place to land here and the best way for me to have the greatest possibility of making a difference was to run as a Democrat. So that's what I chose to do. Makes sense, yeah. yeah so in running to appeal to sort of more, um, you said, the politically homeless people who, who don't really have a preferred party, do you think that makes it harder to win a primary against like more progressive candidates in the Democratic primary? It, it makes it harder uh, to deal with party insiders, to, to those who really are in in the ranks of, of the party itself. But you have to, I think you have to remember that if you look at Democratic primaries in Wisconsin for governor in recent years, anywhere between about 350,000 and 700,000 votes are cast in a Democratic primary for governor, depending on the year. Right. There are only a few thousand Democratic Party members. So the vast majority of people who vote in the Democratic primary are not party faithful, they're not party members. So yeah, it makes it, it, makes it challenging to, uh, to be accepted within the ranks of the, of, of the party. Mm-hmm. They, some of them, not all of them, there's a lot of, I've gone to a lot of county party meetings and, and been received very, very warmly. But some see me as sort of an unwelcome intruder mm. in the race. They don't. They don't think I'm one of them. Mm. But that's that's exactly the problem that the hundreds of thousands of Democratic voters have. Is they they, they think you know they, they want the Democratic Party to be more, to stand for more, to to be more than it has been in a long time. And then you got the independents mm. who think that both parties are are failing pretty miserably, and they're looking for some sign that somebody will will show some independence. And, and so, yeah, you know, the, there's the challenge of trying to get through a primary, a party primary, mm-hmm. and then also be able to appeal to people in a general election. 
But to me, uh, the job is the same in both elections. It's reaching out to people who are feeling dis disaffected, disillusioned, left out, forgotten, mm. and they they really are starved for a different kind of leadership. And so I I want to make people a better offer than they've been made in a long time. And I, I say this all the time. My goal in this campaign is to give people the rare opportunity to feel really good about casting a vote for a change. Mm-hmm. Because heaven knows, so many people go to the polls and they hold their nose and choose between what they regard as the lesser of evils. And I'll be damned if I'm going to settle for being the lesser of evil. <laughs> so I, I want to give people an opportunity to feel really good about voting. And, 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 and if people are made that offer, I hope they'll respond. So uh, to, to return to the, the issue of money in politics, so you, you mentioned your, your group, the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, and you know in that you were heavily involved in tracking money in politics. Yep. So I guess my question is, um, as governor, how would you combat that issue? You have to start by leading by example. You know, you can't say that you're for campaign finance reform and then turn around and play along with with a crooked system. Mm. The challenge is is breaking the mold and getting out of the rut that we're in by actually competing seriously and winning an election without selling out to those big money interests. That's a challenge, but it's a to me it's a challenge that we've got to take on, mm-hmm. and it's got to be tried over and over again. And it is possible. You saw Bernie Sanders run nationally and raised $300 million across America with an average donation of $27. Mm-hmm. And, and so it is possible to get support from large numbers of people giving small amounts. You don't have to sell out to the big money interest. But you start with you start with that. You, you have to practice what you preach first. You can't simply say this is what you're for and then, and then follow a very different path. And then once in office, you have to use the full leverage of the governor's office to push like crazy for real reform of, of our laws so that we get system change as well. But mm-hmm. to me, the, the leading by example has to come before the system change will ever arrive. You know, if you've got a whole bunch of people who get elected selling out to big money and then expect them to turn around and change the system that just got them elected, I, I've been around that, you know, dealing with this issue for a long time, and elected officials just don't behave like that. So to switch gears a little bit, um, you've been described by some journalists as, as Wisconsin as cheese curds. <laughs> So do you have a favorite cheese curd spot? Favorite place well, to get I, cheese curds? You know, I grew up in Clark County. Okay. And and uh, that's the heart of dairy country. And I grew up not far from a little town named Colby. And Colby Cheese is named for Colby. <laughs> and there is a little spot in Colby, a, 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 a little cheese shop, uh-huh. that has killer cheese curds. And then there was a place that burned down in Eau Claire okay. called the Camaraderie. <laughs> and it had cheese curds just about the size of your head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Deep-fried cheese curds. Oh, wow. And I was really fond of those, but but uh, but the camaraderie sadly burned down, and, and oh. so it's no more. But uh, those those are two that really jump out to me. Okay, all right. Well, bad, good. bad yeah. for your health. Yeah, oh, for sure. To eat a lot of deep-fried cheese curds, but I have... Are, are you allowed to say that? Is the dairy industry gonna... Well, maybe the dairy industry won't be happy about that. But, you know... <laughs> 
Sorry, we won't tell anyone. It's just a podcast. <laughs> so uh, speaking of, of munchies, I guess, you've been uh, outspoken about legalizing marijuana. Um, so why is this an important issue to you? And, and how do you think that the voters in Wisconsin will respond to that? I think the voters are ready. Mm. Uh, politicians are scared. And they're, they're being really cautious. But I think the people are ready. For me, it, it really... It's not about use at all, because our, our drug laws have proven remarkably ineffective mm. and counterproductive and racially discriminatory. Mm. People who are going to use have shown that they will use whether it's legal or illegal. So may, having it prohibited is is meaningless. It, large quantities of marijuana are still being sold and used in Wisconsin, even though it's illegal. For me, all of this boils down to a, a pathetic reality in Wisconsin, where we spend more of our state budget on prisons than we do on the entire university system. And I don't know how to change that without dealing with drug laws, because we, we've got, we got too many people doing time who have not committed a violent act or damaged any property. Mm. And a lot of people don't know this, but a second marijuana possession charge is a, is a felony in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. You can go to prison for a second charge. Now, in white neighborhoods, people don't get charged with marijuana a second time and, and, and go off to prison. But then you go to a place like the 53206 zip code, which is the most heavily incarcerated zip code in America. It's in inner city Milwaukee. And people get charged there a second time. Yeah, they go to prison. So that's where it's, where these laws are being applied in, in such an unjust and racially discriminatory way. And we fill prison cells with people who haven't committed violent acts or damaged property. And the average cost per prisoner is $30,000 a year for taxpayers. We're taking people out of communities where they, when they could be working and paying taxes and supporting families and contributing to society. We warehouse them at huge expense to the taxpayers and to me that's why we have a budget that spends more on prisons than on the entire university system. So to me you start by by saying look prohibition of alcohol was a miserable failure. People didn't stop drinking it just drove it into a black market. It drove it into speakeasies and bootleggers ran ran liquor all across the country and a lot of it was with the involvement of the mob or organized crime same thing has happened with marijuana. It's driven into a black market. It's being sold underground, often with the involvement of gangs or other organized crime elements. Bring it up above ground, have it sold in licensed dispensaries, tax the legal sales, use that revenue for a constructive purpose. Wisconsin would be way better off. And then we could actually change our budget policy so that we're spending more on, on unlocking human potential rather than unlocking people away. And so to me, that's what this issue all boils down to. So uh, you mentioned that you were going to use it to fund higher education. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on, on how that would work. And, and, and also, why, why higher education and not... So some other states have gone for primary education, and, and um, why that difference? I've actually said health and, and higher education would, I see. Be the, would be the two places I would steer that money. And part of it is to, is to fund the kind of investments in higher education that would be needed to make education debt-free in Wisconsin. And I think that's got to be Wisconsin's goal. I don't think our state can settle for anything less than... Than a debt-free higher education. Than debt-free higher education. Mm. 
whether you decide to go to a university or or a vocational or technical school, whether it's a two-year program or a four-year program, it ought to be something where you could work your way through school and come out that free. And this idea of burying people under a mountain of death, having a whole generation buried under that mountain, and when are, when are young people gonna ever put a down payment on a house? When, when are they gonna be able to buy a car when they're, when they're saddled with so much debt? And what does that do to our economy? Mm. So this is good for all of us to, to get people out from underneath that mountain. And, and then part of it is also to be used for, for health purposes, to deal with, with treatment for the opioid crisis, the methamphetamine crisis, the coming fentanyl crisis. All, all of those things are, are grossly underfunded. And that, of course, ties back to the whole prison issue. Because what right now Wisconsin is dealing with mental health through its prison system. That's how Wisconsin addresses mental health. We lock people away. Mm -hmm. You take a state like Minnesota, they imprison half as many people as Wisconsin. The two states have almost identical crime rates. So imprisoning twice as many people in Wisconsin has not reduced crime. Mm -hmm. It's just bloated our prison budget. And they do it in Minnesota by focusing on alternative approaches to sentencing, way more emphasis on mental health and drug treatment, and they steer clear of imprisonment. And they are then able to invest way more in higher education. So not only would we generate about $200 million a year through the legal sale of marijuana, and we could use that money for health programs and higher education affordability, but then that helps address the prison problem, and that frees up more money for higher education. You put enough of these pieces together, and we can get to the point where we can make higher education debt-free. Now, for primary education, what I've said is that we cannot continue to fund two separate and parallel systems of education. We're not doing justice by one system, so I've called for ending taxpayer-subsidized private schools, mm -hmm. getting rid of the voucher program, and reinvesting that money in community schools. That, that program was formed 27 years ago. It was supposed to boost student achievement. It hasn't. Voucher students don't do any better than their public school counterparts. By some measures, they actually do worse. And it was supposed to drive school improvement. What it's done is siphon resources away from community schools and weaken them. So when a program like that doesn't work, you get rid of it and take that money and use it to, to strengthen uh, our public schools. So, you know, that, that's, that's a, I, I address a lot of these problems in, with different ways, but, but marijuana legalization is a way to create about a $200 million a year source of revenue that, that could be put to good use. And all of that is being sold now. Hmm. There's just no public benefit derived from it. Right. And, and that seems to be, to me, to be a waste. It's, it's like prohibition of alcohol. Mm. And eventually the country wised up and realized, this hasn't stopped drinking at all. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't stopped the sale of alcohol at all. Sure. It's, just, it's just driven it into the waiting arms of organized crime. Mm. So let's stop doing that, that foolishness. And we got to do the same thing with marijuana. Oh. So you also have a plan to open up Badger Care for everyone. Um, I was wondering, wondering if you could just explain this plan to our listeners and talk about maybe how much it costs the state or if it does cost anything. Well, Badger Care is the, is the Wisconsin version of the Medicaid program, the national Medicaid program. And we get a lot of it is federally funded. 
So the more we the more we expand Badger Care, the more we can leverage federal dollars coming into Wisconsin. So it actually isn't something that costs us in terms of needing to raise state taxes. It actually by expanding access to it, we actually leverage more federal dollars coming into Wisconsin. But to me, uh, right now, if you are are not poor or disabled, you aren't likely eligible for Badger Care. That, that program right now is is largely for low-income and disabled people. Um, I w I've just said let's make everybody eligible. Let's make it a public option and make everybody eligible to buy into Badger Care. What, to do that, you need to do two things. You need to correct the mistake that the current administration made in not setting up our own state insurance exchange under the Affordable Care Act. Wisconsin decided not to do that, kind of fought, fought the Affordable Care Act. We should set up that insurance exchange in Wisconsin. But then we should put Badger Care on the insurance exchange as a public option. Mm. And to do that, you only need to change one word in state law. Uh, right now, the, the eligibility requirements for Badger Care are spelled out in state law. And then it's, the law says, if all of the following apply, you're eligible. If you change the word all to any, you make Badger Care a public option that's, that everybody's eligible for. And you can put it on the insurance exchange. And the great thing is that it is better insurance than what's out there on the private insurance market. You don't have the sky-high deductibles. It, it, it's, it's very comprehensive coverage. It pays for medical expenses from the first doctor visit on. And it's cheaper. The, the cost is lower. The premiums are lower than what's out there on the insurance market. The latest figures I've seen have Badger Care at about 38% less expensive than what's out there in the private insurance market. So why on earth wouldn't Wisconsin want to put a higher quality, more affordable option out there on the private insurance market and say, let's have a public option? Well, the, the answer is simple. The insurance industry doesn't want that option to be presented because that, that, would, that would cut into their profit margins. So all we need is the political courage to stand up to the insurance industry and give people access to more affordable, higher quality insurance coverage that would be a huge step forward for Wisconsin. It would enable people who are trying to start a new business, who've got great ideas to start a business, but they're tethered to a job because that's where their family gets health insurance. Mm. It would enable them to break free and start the new business. It would help farmers. I grew up on a farm, and our family stayed profitable by foregoing health insurance. Mm. So I was 22 years old before I was ever covered by health insurance. And Tens of thousands of farmers could suddenly afford health insurance if, if Badger Care were an option. So, to me, it's something that doesn't need a tax increase at the state level to accomplish. We need to change a single word in state law and set up the exchange to put it on there as a public option, and we can do it. All we got to be able to do is stand up to the insurance industry. Mm. So, uh, one thing that I think is unique to you as a, as a gubernatorial candidate is. Um, that you propose to start a universal basic income uh, experiment. So why is this an important issue for Wisconsin? I, I do stand alone among the candidates. Okay. Nobody else has talked we, about we it. We didn't go to all 17 websites. <laughs> <but> <laughs> 
<laughs> or 15 now. Not but. a single person uh, yeah. other than me has been willing to talk about it. Right. And, and apparently politicians just aren't ready for the conversation. But to me, we are careening toward an increasingly jobless economy. Robots are here and more are on the way. And driverless vehicles are coming. When they come, what's going to happen to all the truck drivers and all the cab drivers and all the bus drivers? And, and as the robots take over, what's going to happen to the factory workers? And what people don't realize is, I mean, there are robots now that can perform gymnastics. They can do cartwheels and somersaults. So if you can make a robot do that, you can clearly make a robot that can put up drywall or paint or lay brick. So those jobs can go too. And, and we're going toward this economy that is increasingly jobless. We've got to figure out as a society, how do we protect vulnerable workers? And how do we maintain social cohesion and hold a society together when increasingly the employment that has kept people in the middle class will disappear? Yeah. So we can either bury our heads in the sand and pretend that this is change isn't coming, or we can start thinking now and start testing programs like basic income to see if that would create the stability and uh, and cushion the blow to the extent where we could keep people in the middle class, even if what they're stuck with ends up being service sector employment. And hey, look at the service sector. There are going to be more and more fast food joints where you, you interact with a computer to place your order and a robot does the cooking and passes <laughs> yeah. you the meal. So those jobs can can be automated out of existence as well. If we don't start talking about this and experimenting as a society, so I want to make Wisconsin the first state in the country to do a state test mm-hmm. of a basic income program. And it's it's white collar jobs as well, right? Oh, Not yeah. just blue collar jobs. Oh, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think a lot of people have have come to terms yet with with what the full force of this this technological revolution is going to look like. But we are going through another economic revolution. We had the Industrial Revolution. People left the land. It was an agricultural economy. They left the land in large numbers, and they went to factories and offices. And that caused huge political turmoil back at the end of the 19th century. Well, we're now going, going through another economic revolution, and it will create political turmoil as well. I just think it would it behooves us to start thinking now and start experimenting now. And look, if basic income doesn't work, I think about it like an expansion of Social Security. Mm. Basically taking Social Security, which lifted elder, the elderly out of poverty. The seniors used to be the poorest single pop, part of the population in America before Social Security. Mm. Now children are the poorest in America. It boosted senior citizens out of poverty and kept them out of poverty. So let's think about a sort of a Social Security for all model where people would have that foundation to build on. Then they go out and they find what work they can they can find and if it, and, and keep themselves in the middle class. And if basic income doesn't work, we'll move on to another idea. But mm-hmm. I think I think it has tremendous promise. Mm-hmm. There's just there needs to be a little political imagination and a little political courage to start saying Let's try these things. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, then we won't go any further. But but why not at least do a statewide test? Are you worried about um, explaining it to voters on the campaign trail in terms of, you know, you hear lots of maybe criticism of the program as free money or yeah. you're going to get people out of work. Are you yeah. worried about any of those problems? Well, you know, there again is one of those risks yeah. that I think is worth taking because of, of the stakes 
the, the stakes are incredibly high. If we bury our heads in the sand, uh, we could have political and social turmoil and, and, and a really ugly situation on our hands. So I think it's worth the risk. But yeah, you know, there, there are those people who say, you know, that, that's just a vast handout program. And, and I, I just say, look, where it's been tried, um, people aren't leaving the workforce. They're not working less. They're, they're, their stress is way down. They're in a better situation financially. They're better able to take care of their families, but they're still out there working. And, and they, they haven't gotten lazy. It, it's, it's a foundation on which people can build a, a, a good family life and, a, and make a good living in a time where people are having an increasingly hard time doing that. So far in the 21st century, Wisconsin is leading the nation in shrinkage of our middle class. No state has seen its middle class shrink more than Wisconsin so far in the 21st century. That's a warning sign. That's a canary in a coal mine that says something is happening in our economy that's dangerous. And, you know, we've got to respond to that. And I think a basic income test is a good way to, to start. And I, I'm not trying to implement it statewide immediately. I'm saying let's do a small test. And then that test will help educate people about whether it can be beneficial. And, and me, me singing its praises wouldn't do nearly as much as test results showing people that, hey, this is actually something that could, that could be beneficial for all of us. And then, and then that would sell the program. Well, fantastic. Great. I think we only have one more question left. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, you are currently wearing blue jeans. You are the me- you are the founder of the Blue Jean Nation. If elected governor, would you do you here now on this podcast give your pledge that you will continue to wear blue jeans yeah. as governor? Yeah, I get that question a lot. <laughs> do you? Okay. People come up to me and say, "Are you really going to campaign in blue jeans the whole way?" There we go. All right. Here's the deal. Um, I I grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. I grew up wearing blue jeans. I've worn them my whole life. I've actually never owned a matching suit. (laughs) Really? Where the coat and the pants are made of the same material. Even a jean suit? I've never owned a matching suit. And so to me, it would just be phony to Mm. put one on now and and wear the costume and pretend to be something that I'm not. Mm. So I chose to dress the way... I have always dressed. But then the other thing for me is I just don't see anything wrong with an elected representative of the people dressing the way most people dress. Why why should an elected official put themselves above the people that they represent by dressing in a manner that's different from the way everybody else dresses? Mm. I, I just don't see anything wrong with dressing the way regular people dress. In fact, I see something very right about it. So, yeah, I, I'm happy to make that pledge. I, All right. I, I will govern in bougie. Big thanks to Mike McCabe for giving us the opportunity to talk to him. And also big thanks to Library, Cafe, and Bar for being so accommodating. If you're still listening to this, you must care about Wisconsin politics. So make sure you vote this Tuesday, April 3rd. We'll be back in your ears next Wednesday to discuss the results of the election. Take care.